you are listening to the sermon podcast from Bethel Covenant Church. We're an evangelical covenant congregation outside Ellsworth, Wisconsin. You can learn more about us at BethelCov.org. Thanks for listening. At Bethel this month, we've been uh, talking about prayer. And the first, um, and talking about what it means to, to talk with God, and the first prayer that I uh, vividly remember praying um, is a prayer that my dad taught me. And it, we used to pray it before going to bed. And, and so I have a question. How many of you, when you were little kids, prayed the, like, the now I lay me down to sleep prayer? Yeah, <laughs> plenty of those. Um, and it, it wasn't that prayer. <laughs> um, I think, uh, you know, you get to that part where it's like, if I die before I wake, and as a, as a little kid, I don't think I would have been able to handle that. And had we ended every night with that prayer, I think I we would have kept my dad up a lot longer. Uh, no, my dad taught me this prayer, and I, it wasn't intentional. It came, um, it's kind of a piece of who, who he is, I think, and who I was as a kid, and I have no idea why he would pray this with me, but he would pray it every time he put me to bed. Uh, we'd lay down, I'd lay in my bed, I'd close my eyes and fold my hands, and uh, he would pray, and I don't know the whole thing, but I know how it ends, and it, it always ended the same way. No matter what we prayed for, um, he'd say, uh, and Lord, help Todd to, to sleep well and wake up rested and refreshed and raring to go in the morning. <laughs> and, and that sticks in me because I um, not only prayed that with him as a, as a little boy, um, but I prayed that all throughout my life. And, and I grew up, and even as I went into high school and college, as I would pray uh, by myself going to sleep, I, I couldn't stop myself from at the end of every prayer saying, and Lord, help me to wake up rested and refreshed and raring to go in the morning. And I remember when um, I met my, my wife, Erin, we started dating, and we, we would pray together at night sometimes before uh, separating, going to bed, or, or once we got married and, and we pray together at night. Um, there are times, and she might not know this, maybe she remembers, that I'll, we'd get done praying and I can't stop myself from saying and, and raring to go in the morning. And especially if I'm not thinking, you know, at night it's like, Lord, help us sleep well and wake up rested, refreshed, and raring to go. Um, and, and it just, it stuck with me for a long time and, and it's still there, as you can tell. And it matters. And even when I pray with Foster, I, I'll say that too. And so, uh, what I'm sure began is just my dad trying, uh, trying to pray kind of off the top of his head and hitting a rhythm. It just, it now transcends generations. And uh, I'll be curious, my parents listen to this. We post this on our podcast online and they listen to this. I'll be curious if he even remembers this or not. <laughs> but it made a big difference to me. You know, I grew up knowing that prayer was important. I grew up in the church. I grew up knowing that it mattered that we talked to God every night uh, before going to bed. It mattered that we talked to God before our meals, that we could talk to God at any time, and, and that it was important. And as I grew up in church, uh, there were kind of two Bible verses, and I apologize, the one here on the left is, is pretty hard to read, uh, but there were two uh, Bible verses that really shaped how I thought about prayer as a kid. The first one is, is 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 16, 17, I think 18's on there as well. Uh, and it goes like this, right? Rejoice always, pray continually. Uh, some say pray without ceasing. Uh, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so as I was going to church, I knew you prayed at night before going to bed. Uh, you prayed before meals and you were supposed to pray continually, apparently. 
Uh, never stop praying. And, and the second one, uh, Philippians 4, 6 through 7, which got shared with me a lot by pastors and Sunday school teachers, I think, because I was kind of an anxious kid. Uh, they'd pray this, or they'd say this to me. It's Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And so as I grew up, I knew these two things, these two true things about prayer, um, that it was really important, according to the Bible, that you always be praying. You know, not always be closing, always be praying. Uh, And second, that you shouldn't be anxious, and instead you should pray. And it's funny to me, um, and the funny thing to me about true things is um, true things, if we don't always understand them well, they... Um, even though they're true, if we, we read them wrong, they can, they can hurt us a little bit. And these ones, uh, these ones got to me a little bit. Because how are you, you know, supposed to pray without ceasing? I remember as a kid um, feeling sad or feeling bad that I wasn't praying constantly, because the Bible says you should pray constantly. And then I remember worrying about that I wasn't praying constantly, and then feeling bad that I was anxious about how I didn't pray enough. <laughs> And it's kind of that double trouble, the one-two the one punch of, of true things. Um, and it's funny to me, as I grew up, as true as these things are, I have always struggled and I've always looked um, for the how and the why. You know, we're supposed to pray all the time. And we're supposed to pray so much that we're not anxious. Um, but how do we get there? Um, because if you try uh, a little harder and you write down on your hand or you do a little trick to say, hey, pray more, I remember... Uh, this was a really great trick if you want to uh, learn how to pray more. My pastor talked about this. and He has put a little dot on our wristwatch. This was back when people wore wristwatches. Um, and it's coming back. Um, and he said, every time you look at that dot, remember to pray. And that was a really great, helpful trick. That helped me a lot. Um, there are all kinds of good ways to, to learn how to pray better. All kinds of good tricks. But what I noticed is that no matter what the tricks were, there were times when prayer was really easy for me and times when it was, it was really hard. You know, we, we know the Bible says that prayer is really, really important. Uh, and we know the Bible says that prayer actually has the power to change our lives, to improve our lives, to make us into the sort of people that are not anxious about all the things that hit us in life. Um, and we know we're supposed to do it a lot, right? But something sometimes is missing from that. We understand the truth in our heads, but we don't always uh, know how to live it out. And, and for my life, I've, I've always looked uh, for ways to, to pray better. Um, one trick, again, another neat trick that helps me. Uh, does anybody here ever journal your prayers? Um, it, yeah, so I, I recommend it highly. It's, it's worth trying, but again, this is just a, a neat trick. Another uh, trick I tried uh, learning how to pray more was to pray while you're doing something that's boring, something else, right? While you're driving or sitting traffic, while you're, uh, you know, folding laundry or, or whatever. These are all, all good ways to do it. Another good way to, to grow in prayer is to pray through the Psalms. But as good as all of these things are, as, as good as like um, uh, journaling your prayer sometimes helps, or as good as uh, praying in the car sometimes helps, or as good as putting a little sticker on your watch helps you remember uh, to pray, um, there's something missing in all these tricks. Uh, in my experience, they, they, come up, they come up short. It's almost to me, at least in my life, and maybe in yours too, 
It's almost like we get the language of prayer right. You know, and maybe for you it's praying the Lord's Prayer during your quiet time. We, like, we get the language of prayer right, but it, it takes more than sharing a language uh, to have a relationship. Uh, and something was always missing for me in how I prayed. And as I've been studying uh, the Gospels this week, looking at how Jesus prayed and how Jesus taught uh, people to pray, looking at Luke, um, it became clear to me that, that Jesus is constantly talking about talking to God. Uh, the Gospels, especially Luke, is, is full of stories of uh, Jesus telling stories about people that approach God, uh, Jesus interacting with people that approach him as God, and Jesus teaching about what it means uh, to pray. And, and our, our passage that you turn to, Luke, Luke 18, has three stories in it. It has more than that, but we're only going to look at the first three. We're going to look at three stories. Um, of different kinds of people reaching out to God. So if you look, um, Luke uh, chapter 18, verse 1, it says, and this is how this section starts. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And then he, he launches into this, these three stories. Uh, and, and a little hard to see, but you can see my, my first one there is our, our widow. Jesus says, Imagine a town. Uh, you live in a town, imagine a town, and in that town there's a judge. This is verse 2, he says, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. Um, so in the Bible's way of looking at the world, in, in Jesus' way of looking at the world, this is a, a bad judge. Imagine a judge that doesn't care about what God thinks, and he even doesn't care about what, what people think. He, this judge, he just does whatever he wants in every decision just to kind of please himself. He's a bad judge. Imagine a bad judge. And he says, and in that town, there was a widow that kept coming to him with a plea. And the widow's request is simple. It's just this is a story. So we don't know what her issue was, but she's asking the judge, grant me justice against my adversary. And and Jesus is saying, in this town, if you've got a bad judge that doesn't care what anybody thinks, and you've got a, a widow um, who's coming before this judge, in the ancient world, uh, a widow with no male family members to take care of you, that is the like hardest place to be. Um, that is the, the lowest amount of power in that culture. So, so if you have a judge that doesn't care about what God thinks, and he doesn't care about what people think. So the la think the last person in the world that he's ever going to listen to is a widow that doesn't even have a brother or a cousin or an uncle or a father to stand in front of the judge in her place. So the fact that she's coming to this judge means this, this poor woman, our widow there, has, has nobody. And he says uh, she keeps coming uh, to this judge demanding justice. And she comes back every day. He says, imagine this widow comes back every day. He says, eventually, even the worst judge in the world is going to give her justice just so that he doesn't ever have to see her again. Uh, he actually says this, the judge does. In verse 5, he says, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. <laughs> imagine, you know, you're going to the DMV every day. They finally just give you driver's license, because they're afraid of what's going to happen if they send you away again. That's, that's this widow. And so Jesus ends this story, this first picture, he says, if, 
if God loves you, imagine how much more God will give justice to those who need it. He tells another story. He says, imagine a Pharisee and a tax collector. And my little icon there, I, I found a burglar because I couldn't find a good tax collector logo. Uh, but in the ancient world, um, and if you were a, a good uh, Jewish person, right, you live in occupied territory. And one of the ways that the Roman Empire gets money from you is they, they find somebody that lives there with you and they task them with the job of collecting taxes. And so your, your tax collector, you would know him. It's probably somebody you grew up around, probably somebody you knew kind of well, speaks your language, uh, worships the same God as you, but he's actually working with the people that are stealing from you every day. And so this tax collector guy, just like you, he walks around with a couple of Roman soldiers with him and demands your money. And how the tax collector makes money is he demands more money than he gives to Rome so that he can live his life. Uh, so your, you know, your friend that you graduated from high school with or this person that you've known your whole life comes to you every day and extorts so much money out of you, you can barely survive. And then he uses it to give, give some money to the people that are extorting you. And he keeps a bunch more money to enrich himself, right? Uh, so, so these aren't, you know, as much as... As much as we hate April 15th, as much as, you know, we're not a fan of the tax man in our world, uh, these, they're far more like criminals. So Jesus says, imagine the worst guy, not just the worst guy, but the guy that uh, every uh, couple of weeks does something bad directly to you and it's wrong on one side. And on the other side, imagine a Pharisee. Now, now we have this idea in our head that the Pharisees are all bad people, right? Oh, they're, they're always against Jesus, but... That's not how we're supposed to see them. That's not how Jesus would have saw them. A Pharisee is, a good, is like a good person. You know, so you've got the, the criminal or the tax collector that's stealing your money, and then you have like basically a good person. You know, does what they're supposed to do, dedicates their life to following God, dedicates their life to helping other people get right with God. Pharisees are, are good guys. Um, at least that's how, you know, they're placed in society. So imagine you've got two people. You've got a tax collector, the worst guy, that's hurting other people to enrich himself, and a Pharisee that's devoted his life to serving God. Uh, he, says, he says this, these two men go up to the court to pray. This is verse 11. And this is how they pray. The Pharisee stands by himself and prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers and evildoers and adulterists. Um, you know, the, the Pharisee, he's thanking God for the, the person that he's made him to be. He says, thank you, God, that I'm not even like this tax over here. He says, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So this, this Pharisee is like, thank you, God, for making me a good person. At least there's some humility there, right? Uh, the tax collector prays like this. The tax collector who, who grew up going to temple, who knows what the law is and knows that what he does is wrong, he says, he stands at a distance. Verse 13, he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus says, uh, 
the tax collector goes home justified. If you've heard this story, you know, a million times, it seems obvious because like Jesus is always hanging out with the sinners and, and isn't that great? Um, and the Pharisees are, are kind of jerks, but this would have been shocking to people. Um, and it should be shocking to us because what Jesus is saying is that the guy that spends six days a week extorting his neighbors, if he confesses his sin honestly before God, uh, is, is a little closer to God than the guy who spends his week doing what everybody thinks he should be doing. Um, he continues on. He has one more group of people. And, and this isn't a story that Jesus is telling. This is something that happens. So as Jesus is teaching these stories, um, we kind of move the scene a little bit. There's this little story about people bringing their babies, uh, baby, right, uh, to Jesus. They're bringing uh, their babies to Jesus for a blessing. So, you know, this is something that we even do today, right? When the politician comes to town that you like, you, you hold your baby so they can kiss the baby, right? You, you want a blessing. You want to touch greatness. And so these people, they, they want the best for their kids. They want a blessing from this miracle worker, this amazing teacher, and they're bringing their babies. And the disciples are like, stay away. You know, Jesus doesn't have time for babies. Uh, in, the, in the ancient world, um, children were, were much lower on the social ladder than they are in, in our world. Uh, children were meant to be uh, not really seen and, and not really heard. And, you know, one day maybe they can add some value by helping you make a living on your farm. If you're really struggling, you might send a child away into slavery. Your family, like children, were, were the bottom rung. And so the disciples are, are right, rightly in their culture saying, quit bringing your weird, stinky children to Jesus. Like, he's got important stuff to do. And Jesus rebukes them, uh, and he calls to the children, and he says, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So if we look at these three stories, um, according to Jesus, when it comes to approaching God, uh, to talking to God, um, Jesus says, we're better off the more we're like children— who don't even know uh, where they are, who don't know any better. He says, we're better off um, like tax collectors that extort their neighbors, and we're better off to be like a widow that has no good options. And the first people that read this and heard this um, would have been bothered by it, and it should bother a little bit, because um, there's a part of us that wants to think that the more we do for others, the better we live our lives, the more able we should be to approach God. But Jesus says, if you want to get close to God, uh, you need something that children have that you don't maybe have. You need something that even a tax collector has that you maybe don't have. You need something that a widow has uh, with no good options. And maybe uh, the first people that read this, and maybe we want to say, well, that's just Luke 18, and Jesus probably meant something else. He doesn't, uh, but, but we can't escape there, because if you read the Gospels, it's, it's full of stories just like this. It's full of encounters just like this. It, it seems to think, according, uh, Jesus seems to think, according to the Gospels, that when it comes to talking with God, sinners, people who do wrong, who act contrary to what God wants, um, they have a leg up on rule followers. 
Uh, It seems to say that the powerless, those that have nothing and no control over their lives, have a leg up over successful people. Uh, The gospel, it seems to say that weak people who can't do anything, who don't know any better, who can't uh, even change their own lives, have a leg up over strong people, that sick people Uh, are a little closer to being able to figure out who God is than well people. That kids have an easier time connecting to God than adults. That poor people have an easier time connecting with God over rich people. That uh, foreign people have an easier time connecting with God and learning who God is over native-born people that grew up learning about God their whole life. Um, And I think there's one thing that all three of these people have in common— I think there's one thing that a, a widow petitioning an unjust judge for justice, a tax collector, and a group of babies that don't know any better have in common. And I think they have that same thing in common with all of the same kinds of people that Jesus seems to respond positively to. I think they have that same thing in common with all the people that have their prayers answered in Scripture, whose requests of Jesus are responded to positively who are lifted up in the Gospels, Um, sick, foreign, sinful, young, old, whatever. The one thing they have in common is, is their need. The one thing a tax collector and a widow and a baby have in common is their need. Because a child knows what it is to need, knows what it is to depend on others for everything. A widow in the ancient world, she knew what it meant to need justice that she couldn't possibly provide for herself. And even tax collectors know when they stand before God that they cannot possibly cover up the wrongdoing they've committed. They need something. They need forgiveness. The sick know their utter inability to heal themselves. And all are willing to cry out to God and say, God help, God save, God heal, God forgive. It seems to me that one of the biggest secrets to praying well, to talking to God well, to responding to Jesus well, is being able to recognize my own need and lack. And not just recognize it, but admit it to myself to God and to others. But the fancy word for recognizing our need and lack is, is humility, right? It's knowing. It's admitting that I'm not special. I'm not better than others. I don't have it figured out. I'm not self-sufficient. And I'm not perfect. It's, it's saying I need help. And according to the Bible, as hard as it is to deal with this, if we really try dealing with it in our own lives, according to the Bible, neediness, <laughs> needing from others, it puts us closer to God. Because the most successful, the most put together, the most uh, well-off, the most religious, uh, they have a much much, much harder time understanding that they could possibly need anything that they can't provide. A relationship with God is only possible when we can admit our need before him. And prayer is how we talk to God in that relationship. Prayer is based on our need before God. When we can't 
admit that need, we can't help but reject a Savior who says, come have rest, come have help, come have forgiveness, come have life. If we think we're all good, if we convince ourselves we've got it figured out and we've made it happen, God doesn't have anything to offer us. Uh, And you see this throughout the Gospels. People that come to Jesus thinking they've got it all figured out, um, it's not that Jesus is mean to them, but they, they disagree. They have a hard time hearing him. Because Jesus doesn't have anything to give them. If you don't need anything, we, we can't receive anything. And the more you get to know God, the more obvious your need uh, becomes. Uh, prayer flows out of this, this need. The more we see our need, the more we cry out to God. The more we admit our need, the more we ask God for help, and the more we feel God helping in our lives. We pray without ceasing... Because our need is without ceasing. We pray without ceasing because we know we have enough. And we're not going to get there without God's help. We can lay down our anxiety because we're relying more and more on God. Not because we have our lives so figured out we don't need to worry anymore. Uh, the Bible, Jesus intends prayer to look like this. You know, we, we pray for our friends. When your friend comes to you and is going through something, they pour out their heart and they tell you their story and that thought is in your head that says, I have no idea. What I have no idea. You know, you've done all the things you can. You've listened to them. You've told them like really good advice maybe. You've tried to help them. If you know, it's a financial need, maybe you gave them money or whatever. You, you have that experience and you just know deep down in your heart that no matter what you do, no matter what you pour out, you don't have what it takes to solve their problem. And out of that need, you pray for your friend. We pray for our wounds and our injuries and pains because we know we can't heal them. We pray for our enemies because we know we don't have the strength to deal with them. We pray for our kids because we hear about their problems, we see their struggles, and we know that there is nothing we can do to fix it. We pray because we need. We pray without ceasing, not because we are so close to God, we know how to do everything right, but because we are so incapable of being faithful without his help. We pray not because our problems are figured out and we don't have to be anxious anymore. We pray because our problems are too big to solve on our own. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the message that Jesus uh, came to earth to share. Last week we talked about how Jesus changed our image of who God is. How Jesus taught people that God is like a father that desperately loves us and is wanting to reunite with lost people. And this week we see that approaching God is about owning our need. And it's, and it's, the, heart, it's the heart of the gospel. Because we believe that Jesus came to earth that he lived and walked around and ate with people and healed people and taught, that he died, and that he rose again to save people with need. Uh, the, the old way, or, or the old is the wrong word, but uh, previous generations and, and the churchy word to say we have need is we're sinners. 
right? So when people say, you know, I'm a sinner that can do nothing to help myself, it's a way of saying, I know that even at my best, when I try my hardest, when I marshal all my efforts, I still fall short of how God wants me to treat others, myself, and him. We believe that Jesus came to earth for imperfect, for sinful, for small, for foolish, for helpless, for sick, for needy people just like us. And maybe you've convinced yourself that you've finally figured it out. Maybe you've been coming to this church twice as long as I've been alive and you're like, you know what? I've got it. I read my Bible three times a day. I pray, you know, the Lord's Prayer whenever I see that dot on my wristwatch. Like, I've got it figured out. Maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's you. Maybe you've arrived, you think. Scripture would call you to ask, what do I need? What is God still working on? Perhaps you're aware of your need every day. And if you are, you're growing in your dependence on God. Perhaps you've followed God for so long that you wake up in the morning and you know you're not going to be able to make it through the day without some help. That is a sign of closeness. Uh, perhaps uh, you see your sin or your need or your hurt and it's so big that you can't believe that God can even help you with that. Maybe you see those negative tendencies in your life, the ways that even when you try hard, it still messes somebody else up. Even when you try to help somebody else, it winds up hurting them. Even when you try and be selfless, your selfishness just flows back in and you think, there's nothing God can do to help me. Uh, the gospel has something for you too. Uh, maybe you live a pretty good life and you go to church and you pay your taxes and you're nice to your neighbor and you don't think you really need anything from God. Maybe you're not sure about any of this stuff, but wherever you are, talking to God, prayer, your relationship to him, it's not some extra thing Christians do. It sits at the heart of what it means to be a human being. It sits right at the center of uh, what it means to receive the gospel, uh, what it means to uh, embrace the good news story that Jesus came to tell. And as I was thinking about that story, it, it kind of has, has three, three parts. It starts by saying, Father, I need, I need you. It starts by admitting our sin, you know, uh, admitting that we can't possibly make it on our own to ourselves and to God. It continues with, I believe. I believe that you sent your son, Jesus, and that he actually lived and actually died and actually rose again for my sin, for my need, for my lack, for that thing that is not right in me. And it ends with this hope and this uh, thing we, we ask for is, God, I want you to make me new. I want you to transform me because of what your son did for me. I want you to make me new. In, in a moment, I, we're going to close our eyes, and I want to invite you to, to pray this with me silently. Um, and there's uh, nothing um, magic or, or special about these words, um, but when we pray them and we really believe uh, and we're really honest with God about our need, we really ask him uh, for his transformation and his help. It's, it's one way to admit before God our need and our dependence on his help, to decide or if you've made this decision before, to, to remember to put our trust and our faith in the death and resurrection of Christ and in the resurrection to come, the resurrection after this life, a hope for eternity.
Would you, would you pray with me? Lord God, I need you. I don't have enough. I need you. You sought after me even though my back was turned. Lord, we need you. Lord, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die and rise again because of my sin and my need. I believe your story told in scripture, God. And because of that, Lord, I want you to make me new. Because I know you can. Help me to depend on you. In your name, amen. If you want to receive a freedom from, from that need, all you have to do is reach out to God. And if that's the first time, if you prayed that silently with me, if that's the first time you've admitted your need before God and your inability to make yourself right, if this is the first time you decided that maybe you really do believe all this stuff, um, you're promised new life and new transformation. Um, uh, the Bible says that it starts right now, that God is at work uh, bringing resurrected life into your life right now. A new life that starts today and stretches past today and tomorrow and into eternity. And so if you did that, if you ask God to, to save you and make you new today, I, I want you to talk to somebody about it. To me or, or Dan as our prayer person today or, or your neighbor. But we want to encourage you. We want to walk with you um, as God transforms all of us. Because that's what it's about uh, to the church. Um, at, at the basic level, like all the stuff we do here is it's great, and it's great to sing songs, and it's great to read the Bible, and it's great to hear music, and to play, and to eat, and to pray, and to do all the stuff that we do together, but it's very basic level what it means to be the church is to be a group of people that together admit their need before God, that believe that God can help them, that he sent his son to die and rise again to make us new, and that are walking together as God is making each and every one of us new. And so if you've, you've made that decision, we want to walk with you in that in an intentional way. But with all that said, let's, let's pray together one more time. Thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from Bethel Covenant Church. We're an evangelical covenant church outside Ellsworth, Wisconsin, and you can find out more about us at BethelCov.org.